My name is Klaus Wasten, and I'm the director of the College of Extraordinary Experiences. You're listening to The Business of Extraordinary Experiences. And with me today, I have Irina Oleksu. And Irina is a corporate trainer, mostly in communications. She spent five years with Procter & Gamble doing a lot of interesting stuff that we're going to dive into. And then in her deep, dark past, she actually spent some time in the Department of Foreign Affairs, just to throw in a little bit of mystique and internationalization. Irina, welcome to the show, and thank you so much. for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And Irina, let's start at the deep end. That's the most fun part. Corporate trainer and communications. What does that mean for you? So this is something that I've actually just started doing professionally. I was training people in the past, but actually getting paid for it is a new thing. And ultimately, what we're trying to communicate to people is that whenever you talk to somebody, you should either build relationships or at least not damage them as the first thing. That if you communicate for business, um, your communication needs to achieve results, because otherwise, why are you talking? And that um, to communicate effectively in business, you should use all resources available, not damaging relationships, and while accomplishing your results. So that's ultimately what it comes down to. Very nice. And I can hear from our not perfect internet that we may have some sound quality issues, but for you out there listening, please forgive us. This is how the world functions, and we'd much rather have Irina's wisdom, even with a little bit of technical difficulty, than not have it at all. So. We'll continue on, and if it gets too bad, then we'll just blame technology. That's the easiest in all cases. Cheers from a coffee shop in Barcelona. This is to make it authentic. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty nice place to work, though. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's wonderful. With that in mind, talk to me about experience design, because obviously when, what you're working with, especially now, very much linked to the experience of communication or being communicated to, communicated with, however you want to phrase it. Tell me about how does experience design enter into your job? Um, certainly. So the way I think about it um, is, so when we build the trainings, for example, now when we start building a new training for one of the corporate clients, where we start with is thinking about how do we need the people to feel to be able to learn what they need to learn, to be able to do what they need to do, which is ultimately accomplish the business results. So what we start with is what kind of mindset do we need to get people into? And then when we have that emotion or that couple of emotions that they need to feel, we think, okay, how can we get to that place? So how can we start a training um, from that spot? So feel, do, learn, success, sort of in that order. So to give you an example, uh, the state or the, the skill or the, like the, the state we, we have identified as how can we give people more confidence? And that's not something you can do in two working days. But we thought, okay, so if it is confidence, how can we help them practice courage? Because that's something we can do. You know, we can make people get up on stage and present six to eight times and then we record them and they get those videos, they can see themselves present. So how can we get them to practice courage? And I can tell you by the time they get up for the sixth, seventh or eighth time, they do way better than it did the first time around. So you do, and this fits very nicely in one of the other things that we're both believers in, which is the rapid prototyping approach. Pretty, maybe we don't call it that, but yeah. <laughs> what do you call it? I think that's that's also interesting because learning different lingo for what is at least somewhat the same terms. What's it called here? Iterations or what? What, what do you call rapid prototyping? So one of my people I'm learning from, he said. Well, it's like hitting your um, hitting your finger with a hammer. So when you stop hitting, you appreciate that it doesn't hurt. 
So that's what he compares to the <laughs> getting up on stage for people who don't like doing it. <laughs> As somebody who loves being on stage, I can say that, that I've come across that, not that exact hammer analogy before, but that people think that it's a pain, that the only way to get better at it is just to get used to the pain. So, so I, uh, I, I'll take that with me. Thank you. <laughs> when you are designing a training course or a training experience, what are a couple of key things? Because obviously you need to create a sense of trust and you need to actually convey what you're doing. In this case, there, there's a little bit, you talked a little bit about what you actually do, but tell me what are important design elements for designing something like that? Just the simple thing with the, the speeches on stage and the video and sending it, that that's a designed experience. Tell me about that. You start where people are. You don't start with where you wish they were. You don't start with, oh, this is a great idea. This is what you need as a solution. No, you go in and you start talking. And I mean, the last one of the last things we're doing, it's a training we're delivering at the end of next week, is about intercultural communication between different offices within the same global corporation. And what you start with is getting five, six people in a room and you know having a conversation of, so what does it look like in your meetings? So what does it look like communicating to people from this, that, and the other culture? Um, so I think that's, that's actually the starting point. So actually we don't know where we're going to end up, which is something that I really like. Because if I knew where I was going to get out of it, then what's the interesting part about it? <laughs> sure. No, I, I get that. that. That segues nicely into a more business type question, because I think all of us who do things for clients or people who have done things for clients, we all want to help. We all want to hear what's your situation? What's your problem? How do we help you with what it is? we? Can. But very rarely is it something that people want to pay for, these like exploratory meetings and it's it's in many businesses they struggle with the client doesn't want to pay you to tell you what the problem is they want to pay you to tell them what the solution is but as you said very nicely if they don't tell you what the problem is then it's pretty hard having a solution that fits them instead of the generic do it this way so how where, when does the clock start for you when does the meter start so for for us it starts much earlier because we would think of where do they fit in the ecosystem of the city they're based in? So this particular one I'm working with now, they're based in Krakow. So what is their role when it comes to Krakow in general? What is their role when it comes to the, what kind of businesses do we serve? So we serve the shared economy. Where do they need to be in a couple of years? Um, considering where our clients need to be in a couple of years, actually looking at optimizing our internal portfolio. So, you know, what are the courses we should invest in? Who are the trainers that we should focus on? And kind of looking at really at the business side and crunching the numbers of, what is the return on investment of one hour of work of us as a company? Um, and what is it worth investing the time in, considering that the time is limited and the number of people is limited and the resources are limited, right? So, so the clock starts much earlier. It's more of a global thing. And then we go, okay, so this is how we fit into the ecosystem of the city and of the, where the businesses are going. We are about business communication. So what within that segment do our customers need? I, I think a lot of us, myself included, have a certain sense of envy there because one of the things that is, is really key, especially when you're running a small business, and I did that for quite a bit of years, is that you want you want to help people and you want their money, both at once, preferably. But you also know that if you start the meter and demand their money from the moment you pick up the phone, they're just not going to call you. And on some hand, at, at some point, you need to start the clock ticking or or you'll never get paid. So that's a delicate balance for many small businesses. So I, I love it when you say the meter starts much before. And you know, it's another thing is that it's not about just this training we're doing now, because 
what you have in the back of your mind is we want to work with this company in the future, going beyond just that training that you're delivering. And so it's also the follow-up and the looking at where are they in a year and then taking that somewhere. And, and, and this as well is something that I've found, and, and I know a lot of others have found hard, that people want to pay for the, the transformation, or if we're going to stick to the language of the podcast, they want to pay for the extraordinary experience, whatever that may be. But they'd rather not pay for the lead up to it, and they especially don't want to pay for the after. And it seems that you're doing both pretty successfully, both the before and the after. So I think that there's some tips there to be learned by other people. And, and I'd love us to unpack that a little bit. So, you know, the hard part about that is um, when you have things like Excel skills or when you have something which is really like easily quantifiable, learning how to use a new, I don't know, a new system, like in Procter & Gamble, we were using SAP a lot, one of the main partners for years. It's very difficult. How do you measure soft skills in terms of companies' KPIs? Because ultimately what people are saving on, they're saving time, right? So as a... When, when, when we go into a presentation training and we go, so say you are presenting, you're preparing a presentation that takes half an hour for six people and it takes you six hours to prepare it. You know, how long does it take you? And nine out of 10 people say it takes six hours and 30 minutes. And we go, no, that's not what it takes. It takes six hours, 30 minutes of your time. Plus, if you have six people in a meeting, that's another three hours of company time. So in total, it's almost 10 hours of company time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, I like that. And we rarely think of it that way, that it's never the time of the person who's presenting and getting up on stage. It's, okay, if you have a meeting of 20 people, do they really need to be here? Because the company's paying for each one of those 20. I've also heard stories, um, I don't know which office this was, and I don't remember the company, but there was a counter above the door to the meeting that would count an average of the salaries of all the people who are booked in for the <laughs> meeting. And it would tell you how much that meeting cost the company. So that really makes you wonder, you know, do I really need to be there? Do I have something to contribute? But, um, and that's the hard part with the soft skills, right? Like, how do you quantify that apart from the time that you save? But we rarely go, oh, you know, now I have two hours to go talk to my colleagues about the new project. Like, it's difficult to measure that. So we think of how else can we do that? You know, can it be shorter emails? Or that's why it is about the longer term relationship, because you can only see the effects of, say, a communication training or an email training or a presentation training. It takes time. I like that. And then I suddenly realized that, that, of course, there's immense value in just teaching people how to write shorter, more concise emails, but it's incredibly hard to measure. Oh, absolutely. That just gave me some, uh, some inspiration, food for thought. That's, <laughs> that's exactly why we're doing this, because I have this. And of course, I'm. it may be totally wrong that if I get inspired by listening to our podcast guest, then somebody else who's listening may get inspired. That's that's my core <laughs> behind this. And I may be completely off, but this was like, oh, thank you for that. Uh, You're welcome. Let's talk about the hard stuff. You spent, as, as we mentioned, you spent five years with Procter & Gamble. You've worked with, with communications for a long while. You're very much at heart, if not at heart, then at least uh, um, as a skill set, you're a businesswoman and a pretty damn good one. When do you just want to give up and and uh, do something else? When do you want to kick the door in and just yell at people? When are your dark times? Well, actually, you know what? In Procter & Gamble, I was doing something completely different. So my core skill was, um, I was working in supply chain manufacturing. So it's like fab uh, factories and safety shoes and uh, big machines wrapping things in foil, you know? So it's, <laughs> it's a completely different world. Um, a lot of engineers, a lot of numbers. That was so interesting. I remember, so one of my big assignments, speaking of the dark times, was going to Barcelona for six months. And it was this big project where we were um, selling a PNG factory to an external contractor and we were overseeing this project. And I remember walking into the factory for the first time and these giant machines moving around and things palletizing. 
boxes of Febreze because for me it was making air fresheners. And I was thinking, what am I doing here? And then it was so interesting six months later, you know, walking through the very same holes and I knew exactly what I was doing there. So I think for me, if I look back time and time again, where the dark times were is where I have a hard time accepting that I'm not good at things or I'm not ready or that I don't know something. And it's interesting how when I was a team leader, there is space to give to other people and to say, you need to learn. This is normal. Make mistakes. But when it's myself and when I need to learn and when I need to take the time or to make mistakes, it's like, well, but there's no space for me to do that. You know, that's for other people. So I think that's something that's been really difficult for me. Do you think that your harsher judgment of yourself than of others makes you better at learning fast or worse at learning fast? I think it definitely serves a purpose. I wouldn't say about learning fast. I think what it is, is there's a lot of tenacity and determination. So there's definitely that aspect. So I think much of how far I got was due to just sticking to things, you know, and just to keep going. I just don't think it had to be at a such such high cost to me that it could have been less stressful. So I think that was more that. So in terms of learning, it took what it took. But I think it didn't have to be so stressful. It didn't have to be. I think that's my biggest takeaway. There was this beautiful quote. Um, there is this, maybe you watched the movie with Tom Hanks, uh, The Bridge of Spies, when they're exchanging the spies and there's a guy who's been uncovered and he's supposed to go back to USSR, most likely to not have a very good life. And Tom, Hank, Tom Hanks' character asks him, he's like, are you worried? And the discovered spy says, would that help? I think that's ultimately the answer to your question. So does it, like with that perfectionism and struggling and everything, um, I think it doesn't help. I think you still get the work done because of the kind of, like, I mean, I get the work done because of the kind of person I am, but it didn't help emotionally, that's for sure. Moving away from from the kind of the, the, the tougher side of things to your, your, your P&G days and some of the stuff you did on top of your regular work, like the event, and you said, you said something interesting in our pre-interview about how it wasn't your job, but you did that on top of it and you learned a ton from that. I mean, you've, you've designed quite a bit of events as part of your P&G career. Yeah, um, in fact... It was funny when I was thinking of this uh, this podcast. Events is just something that I cannot seem to stop doing. You know that I try to get away with it from it, and then it just kind of keeps coming back. So the last three things I did, and also one of them was my last week of work in PNG, actually, <laughs> where um, it was our yearly conference for 900 people, where we took away 900 people for an offsite, where we were doing a Guinness World Record, and we broke it successfully playing in a musical app. So there's a whole a whole room full of people playing and their phones and an app to break the Guinness World Record. We were doing a hologram of Mr. Proctor and Mr. Gamble. So that was quite fun. Getting 900 people to do kind of uh, an escape room in a box challenge. As you can see, we're really excited about that. So decoding things and uh, uncovering boxes. And then the second thing that I was doing just before I left was something called Personal Development Day. So we did this event where I used design thinking things that I learned during my postgraduate degree. And I did first, I did surveys with people inside the company. I mean, nobody asked me to do this. It was just, we had an event and I just wanted to do it my way. So I said, hey, here's how we're doing it. Um, so I started interviewing people like from leadership, then the specialists and people who have been in the company in multiple roles or have been in company for a short time. And I started looking for patterns and I wanted to see, aha, okay, so let's see. In terms of soft skills and hard skills, what is it that our organization needs? And then I started looking, okay, so if we use the, because out of 900 people, for sure, we have people who have those skills. My question was, how do I deliver trainings to 900 people so that we are, as organization can level up in, in one day? So then we thought, based on my, my surveys, what came out of it is that people, if it's one day, eight hours of training, it's too much. And if somebody's out or away, or if people are doing backup for each other, they cannot attend these trainings. So then instead of one day, we did two days, four hours each. And instead of one training, we duplicated everything twice. So 
I did that first March this year and we got 300 participants. And then just before I left in September, we did it again and that was over 700 participants. So I was um, very pleased with how that worked out. Nice. And, and, and from from the things you say, the, the Guinness Book of Record thing and, and the escape room, it sounds like a little bit of a more unusual corporate offsite than a lot of what's out there. And, and we're, of course, interested in these extraordinary experiences. And I think that if you ask somebody on the street or somebody in, in big business, what does a P&G 900 person offsite look like? I'm not sure they'd say musical Guinness Book of Record and, uh, and escape room, which to me is very cool. So if you were, <laughs> give, if you were to, to look out to all of the people in kind of big corporate designing events, in-house, off-site events, in-house but off-site, mm -hmm, um, across the world, and if you were to give them three tips, what would those be? Three experiences tips for the people out there. Um, the first one I would say simple and scalable because with the huge groups of people you want it to be as simple as possible but you want it to be able you want to be able to scale it quickly because for example for us we were supposed to be doing the event only for our site and then another side joined and then another side joined and we needed to do the same activities for more people so it was good that we had the kind of activities where we could scale simple but scalable got it second is talk to your leadership and I don't mean once because <laughs> I can feel the pain there. <laughs> I mean, it's just that because you need to be dynamic in terms of the changes. And, you know, sometimes when it comes to decision making within the corporation, that's something the corporations tend to be known for is that things take time. And when it comes to events where you only have two days and it's really about, for example, for us, it was about presenting the goals for the whole year. Um, it couldn't work like that. Like it's something needed to change, needed to change on the spot. So it was more of checking in with the key people for the event all the time. Hey, this is happening like that. This is happening like that. Because, you know, as an organizing team, you're, you know what's going on and you think that other people know what's going on, but you better check 15 times with every single key person if they know what is happening, if they know where they need to be, if they have the microphone, if there are batteries, you know, and all these other things. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And the third one, take care of everything that you can. So take care of everything you can predict before the event, because then it gives you time during the event to focus on the things that you didn't expect. And what I mean is what we did, for example, with the team is we went through all worst case scenarios, including what if somebody dies or, you know, what if somebody gets an injury? So you kind of just make a roster of things which are like really worst case scenario. Um, what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? And you kind of have answers for that, at least more or less, and the team is all on the same page. So you go, okay, so we have an idea what happens if those really, really bad things happen. So if they do happen during the event, you have the space to to, to think, okay, you know, what, what do I need to do? In, and in our case, we didn't need to use most of those, you know, tragic scenarios, but actually having gone through them, I could see how the nervousness amongst the other organizers really gone, has gone down. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. And I guess I guess part of that nervousness stems from the fact that for these people, most of them, this is not their primary job. Because if you're an event professional, then you've thought about this and you may even have been in some tough situations because you've run a hundred things before. But if this is something you do as a side part of your job, then of course there's some strength in knowing that if the shit hits the fan, then we be prepared. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, also, especially for the corporate events, you have an internal team that would be working with an agency, but you still have an internal team. And you need to make sure that you, you get along, right? So that you have the support from the leader. I mean, especially for corporations, you need to make sure that you have the support of all the right people. Thank you. Three useful tips. 
Irina, as we slowly begin to uh, round off and wind down and all sorts of fancy words for saying our time is, is up before too long, is there anything that you think I should have asked you or anything you want to get off your chest? It could be a rant, it could be a comment, it could be a poetic reading. That would be new at least. But uh, is, there, is there anything you feel we've been missing this, uh, this short but sweet conversation at a Barcelona coffee shop? Um, well, something that I'm thinking about these days a lot is less actually staging experiences of this is what people need to go through and more of how do I create a space or how do I create a platform where things can happen? You know, so even if people don't know what to do and how to do it when they enter an experience, it's how do I make it feel familiar enough that they would be comfortable exploring? Something like how do you, how do you create a space that promotes emergent content, so to speak? Mm -hmm. That actually, you know, um, that it's not about me anymore. That somehow how do I create an event that where people create it for themselves? That's a, a bit of a tease question to, to put in here at the end, because that's what I've spent most of my life doing. So it's hard for me not to jump on that and want to want to not only give all the answers, which I, of course, don't have, but also ask all the follow up questions. But that leaves us with uh, something to discuss another day, because here it's uh, slowly time to round off to all our listeners out there. This has been the business of extraordinary experiences you have heard even with a little bit of troublesome sound, but here in the flesh, you heard Irina Olitsi and me, your host, Thank you for listening.